HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Soul by Todd Richards, I'm very happy to have Adrian Miller on here. And one thing, um, I believe that Adrian will be the first lawyer that we have on uh, Soul by Todd Richards, which is uh, an unusual moniker to have when you have someone talking about uh, food and I would say food and politics, and especially African-American food ways. Uh, his first book, uh, Soul Food, uh, won him a 2014 James Beard Foundation Award. Uh, and then also the President's Kitchen Cabinet, which won him a, oh, he was nominated for a 2018 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work, uh, nonfiction. And I, I guess being Black is nonfiction uh, uh, to some people. <laughs> and he also served as a White House advisor to U.S. President uh, uh, Bill Clinton. And his new book, uh, released in April of 2021, is called Black Smoke, African-American United States of Barbecue, uh, which is really going to be the topic that we talk about African-American uh, food ways and definitely be talking about some barbecue because, as everyone knows, I just opened a barbecue restaurant with my partner, Josh Lee, and then Adrian's writing a book on barbecue. So I think it's a great time to be talking about barbecue and the state and contribution of African-Americans to this food ways. So without further ado, let's welcome Adrian Miller to Soul by Todd Richards. Hey, man, it's good to be with you. It is good to be with you as well. Uh, I know we go uh, back a, a good ways, you know, through the SFA and uh, mm -hmm. always talking about uh, uh, 
you know, African-American foodways, black foodways. I think I, I saw you uh, in March 2020, uh, right before everyone shut down for COVID in Denver uh, and had a great time catching up with you and, and all of that. But yeah. just give um, everyone a brief uh, background on, on yourself and how you left law and got into, well, you still probably do a little bit law on the side. I don't think you can take the lawyer out of a, <laughs> out of a lawyer. But how did you transition from law uh, into food waste? Well, so I'm just going to admit this up front. I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, which immediately loses me street cred on almost all subjects related to soul food, Southern food, and barbecue. But let me win you back. My parents are from the South. Uh, my mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad's from Helena, Arkansas. So th these were the food traditions I grew up with. I uh, went to Stanford undergrad. Then I went to Georgetown Law School. Practiced law for about four years, hated it, got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office, and I said, I need to do something else. Um, then I got a chance to work in the Clinton White House on something called the Initiative for One America. It was a racial, ethnic, and religious reconciliation um, initiative, and the basic idea was that if we just talk to one another and listen, probably learn that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So this gets to why I transitioned to food ways, or at least food writing. Um, the short answer is unemployment. So, yeah. Right. That's a great way to get uh, to find a new career is not to have yeah. a job. It's a great motivator. So um, coming out of the Clinton White House, my my ambition at that time was to be the senator from Colorado. So I was trying to get back to Colorado, land a job and start my political career. But the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. And then uh, in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know what? I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I'm just browsing in the food section because I'd always like to cook. And I came across John Edgerton's mm. Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. Mm -hmm. Flipped the book open like page four, man. He's, he writes the, the um, tribute to black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. Wow. And wow. I thought that was interesting. I mean, certainly, certainly with John Edgerton writing something like that, you know, people paid attention to it. Yeah. Um, but you picked up from there. Go go ahead with the rest of your story. Oh, yeah. So, you know, he wrote the book in the late 80s. So I'm reading it around 2000, 2001. And so this is, you know, 14 years later. So I just figured somebody had already done it. So I just reached out to him, uh, emailed him, and I asked him, I said, yeah, you, you wrote this a while ago. Do you still think this is true? And he said, well, you know, people have addressed parts of it, but, you know, there's always room for someone else to write about it. And so with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that launched the journey. So let's talk about soul food in general, uh, the general term. And, you know, some people might think that it is a old term, meaning as old as our country has been around. But most people would not understand that it is a relatively new term, um, being that I'm a 70s child. I think you might be around a 70s child, but that 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 term came out of the 60s. What influence of of the the times in which that term started uh, made that word soul food so popular yeah so actually one of the biggest surprises of my research is that soul food has a lot longer history in the english language um so the earliest joining of the word soul and food that i could find was actually in shakespeare mm. um, his first play the two gentlemen of verona Two uh, female characters, Julia and Lucetta, are talking about this really hunky guy named Proteus. And he walks by in one scene and Julia says to Lucetta, Oh, knowest thou not that his looks are my soul's food? Pity the death that I've pined in by longing for that food so long a time. Oh, so, wow. 
Yeah, what I jokingly tell audiences when I give that story is that, yep, even in the late 16th century, not unusual for two girlfriends to get together and describe a guy's yummy. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) But for the next four centuries, soul food had a religious connotation. So you see it pop up here and there, and it meant doing anything to edify your spiritual life. So uh, listening to a hymn, uh, listening to a sermon, studying scripture. But then you get to the 1940s, and you've got this group of um, African-American jazz artists, and they're pretty pissed off because the white jazz artists are the ones getting all the pub, right? They're making the mm-hmm. best money. They're getting the best gigs. And so these jazz artists say, well, okay, we're going to take this music someplace where we don't think these white artists can mimic the sound. And they took the sound to the rural church, the rural black church. I'm sorry, the black church of the rural South. Okay. And and that gospel-tinged jazz sound, they started calling soul and funky. So it started getting slapped to other aspects of the culture. So it was really soul music first, then soul brothers, soul sisters, soul food. Um, okay. So that was floating around in black culture, at least late 40s, 1950s. But in the 1960s, that's when it goes mainstream. So usually uh, what happens with, with our, our culture uh, is that we do things and it takes the, the world a few years to catch up. You look at, I always use the reference to rap music and then the term hip hop, that it wasn't until BET Awards started their own awards and then, <laughs> you, you know, hype had their own awards. Then they saw this popularity happen. Then American Music and Grammy wanted to jump in on it. And now you came in, you I mean, you have the NAACP awards and you still have the other awards but they don't seem to be as popular as mm-hmm. you know as these other uh, pop culture uh, awards with soul food it seems to be right now in the 19s and the 2020 especially that there's this resurgence of people wanting to understand soul food more and especially like understand with the black lives movement and things like that but how does that does this movement in soul food have the same depth of character as that movement of soul food in the 60s and, and like you said, early 50s? Yeah, see, I don't I don't think so, because I think in the 50s and 60s, there was, it just had such cultural, uh, cultural cachet. I mean, just all over the place in the in mainstream media. And you see a flood of soul food restaurants open up during that time. I don't really see the same thing happening here. Um, but what is interesting is I think it's part and parcel of just this growing trend among American diners, especially younger ones. They mm. want to know their food's backstory. Um, there, there's a longing for authenticity. Uh, they want to know where this food comes from, why people eat it. And I don't think we had that before. I, I think before in the first wave of popularity of soul food, it was just people were just you know, fascinated by black people. And, and this culture has always been fascinated by black people, right? Correct, fascinated correct. by our culture. They don't love us, but mm-hmm. fasc- fascinated by our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one thing, um, and I would love to get your reaction to this. Uh, I still think that almost every aspect of our culture has gone global, but our food. Yeah. You know, I, I would say from a technique standpoint um, that it has, and I know we're going to talk about barbecue, uh, you know, later on in, in, in this episode. But I think from a technique standpoint, we definitely see where uh, the world has uh, taken a lot of those uh, keys from us using a, a 
a musical term uh, to in, in a great pun that way. But they've taken a lot of keys and a lot of hues from us. I don't believe that we have had the opportunity to tell our own story, just like, you know, John Edgerton said, as mm -hmm. well as I don't believe that um, we don't uh, really understand the effects of slavery in the sense that we could not write down recipes or, or things like that. So everything was passed on by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And until so we were able to start writing these stories down now, and I believe we maybe skipped some generations in doing that, but they have so much access now with social media and video that they can reinterpret things in their own own, own way. Oh, and, and you think that that with the cues and all the other things and techniques, do you think they connected to blackness or are those kind of detached? Um, well, it depends on on. I, it's still detached, and, but okay. that is the, the the reason why, you know, that I want you to be on the show. That's the reason why I started the podcast. Uh, that's the reason why I wrote Soul is to really help unite Afro culture around the world through mm -hmm. the food ways. And, and okay. I believe that's the same thing that you, you know, you did with the first book, um, really just talking about it in the sense of what's delicious and and didn't qualify it by necessarily ingredient. But you mm -hmm. talked about it more in the way of people. And I really just want to give a, give you a minute here to talk about the people behind soul food that you did a lot of research on. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was always curious about where soul food came from. And so uh, at first I started with West Africa and I followed the advice of Lola's Eric Eli, mm -hmm. um, very popular. He said, follow the people. And so, you know, I just tried to pick up the food story all along the way. And um, when it came to soul food specifically, uh, and again, this was a surprise in my research, I felt it was really about the Black migrants who left the South during that period of the Great Migration and transplanted their food in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they did what any other immigrant group does. You get to the new place, you try to re replicate home or recreate it. And if you can't, replicated exactly because you're in a different environment. You don't have access to the same ingredients. You start finding substitutions. You start looking at what your new neighbors eat, you know, and you, you just kind of adapt. But then once you become settled and prosper, you remember the good times food of the old country and you probably have the resources now to get that food. And you start um, making that more part of your diet than, than um, say it was before. So I argue that uh, soul food is really the celebration food of the rural South that gets transplanted across the country. And, um, you know, celebration food is richer, you know, more sweets, mm -hmm. more fat. So that's not meant to be eaten on the regular. And Absolutely. I think, I think we've just been eating soul food out of context and, um, eating it more regularly than we should, at least the celebratory stuff, the everyday stuff like greens, black eyed peas, sweet potatoes, you know, we, the, you know, nutritionists are telling us how good that is for us. So we should load up on that. But, um, I think because we've been eating it out of context, that has led to soul food getting a bad rap. Let me uh, ask you about that context, though, even further, though. Do you think that that's um, that there's a bit of shame um, in that in the context of slavery that oh. that we did not embrace this food? Uh, and the reason why I bring this up, I'm working on a new book myself. And when I was doing some research and getting to California, and you talk about this migration, I see where this migration went to Texas. I've seen it where the migration went to Mexico. And for most people don't know that Mexico at one point in time had 200,000 slaves mm. and, and really erased the entire history. But when I get to California, we lose all kind of 
references to soul food um, in the sense of you look at the popular places in L.A., like the Dunbar Hotel and places like that where they're eating veal scallopini and shrimp cocktail. And mm-hmm. there's only a few places that you will find soul food that they didn't go to after those places where the juke joints and all those things come up. How much of the shame in our, our heritage in this country contribute to the lack of us celebrating our own food culture that is really popularized around the world, but we don't take our own credit for it? Yeah, no, I think that's such a key point. So uh, really, there have been kind of two parallel parallel narratives about African-American food. So one has been positive. It's been this idea that, yeah, we took all the stuff that people didn't want and we turned it into something delicious. But the mirror image of that is that, oh, this is the master's leftovers or master's garbage. Why are you eating that? I mean, you by eating that, you're digesting white supremacy. And I think that negative narrative has been so powerful that it has caused shame um, towards our traditional food. And so here's where it gets really interesting. Uh, So in recent decades, right, we're starting to see our food show up in other cultures, um, especially in fine dining contexts. Absolutely. And so like pig's feet is the perfect example, right? Pig's feet, you get it at a black joint, you know what, five, Mm -hmm. eight bucks, uh, good stuff, right? But then it shows up in a white tablecloth restaurant. It's called Trotter's. Absolutely. It's being sold for $25, you know, $25, $30. And people are like going crazy. They're like, oh, the chef is honoring the whole animal, taking us to places we've never been before with food. And I'm just like, what? So um, and the thing that made me sad, and I'm glad you haven't done this, is I've seen so many African-American chefs distance themselves from our traditional food because of that stigma. Um, and, And that has created the space for other people, people from other cultures to make our food and profit off of it. And I, I just tell, um, you know, cooks, African-American, because I like, look, you can cook whatever you want. I want that for you. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. You know, um, I was I would say and I, 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 w- I would not be one who was not remiss from that. It wasn't until I got my first nomination in 2008 for a Beard Award. And um, that next year, I wanted to do something different, but I was tired of mimicking other people's food ways. And I really believe that that was what made me change and really say there's got to be something else. And well, it was more to it than that. I got the AAA Five Diamond Award, went mm-hmm. down to the awards, and I was the only black person. Which there. is no joke. And I'm looking at all these French guys, Italian guys, you know, up there on the stage, and I'm cooking their food. I'm not cooking my own food. And that's what really started me on this pathway of celebrating our culture, our food more. But one thing you said, though, about the positive side of our food ways uh, that really struck me is that though those ingredients might have been meek, they were always delicious. Mm-hmm. And where did that quality of deliciousness uh, come about? Because you've seen or seen other people's meek food and it's not necessarily as delicious. And to your point, like with oxtails, oxtails used to be 99 cents a pound. Now they're <laughs> $4.99 a pound. You know, <laughs> if you go to a Jamaican place and they give you like two oxtails, you look at them crazy, but I know how much they cost. But where yeah. does this, this way of making it delicious come from? Oh, I, I think that's definitely a nod to our ancestors in West Africa. Uh, we're talking about a people who, um, prized vegetable cooking, vegetarian cooking, and had a way, had an adeptness with seasoning that I think uh, shows up in our food ways. So Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely a nod of, that's a heritage. And then the other thing you have to realize is that um, because of the way that the food for enslaved people was controlled, 
we didn't get access to those prestigious foods. We didn't get access to white flour, white sugar, and other things as much as whites did. So we were eating seasonal vegetables for the most part, drinking water. I mean, very close to what we call vegan today. Mm-hmm. And so those cooks had to figure out how to spice that up to, to nourish a people under the most horrendous circumstances. So I think this just shows their versatility and ingenuity as cooks. You know what? It's amazing that you brought that up about vegetarianism or veganism, because, you know, the the story to most people is that it's fried chicken, ham, uh, you know, pork chops, all these things. And what I try to tell people is, first of all, during slavery, they weren't given anyone any pieces of meat unless they were scraps. So we always had this vegan or vegetarian diet. Uh, secondly, uh, that the difference between Southern food and soul food is the way it's seasoned. They're the same ingredients. The techniques are the same. But I do believe that they have some differences in the way spices are are applied. And mm-hmm. I want to ask you this question as we uh, get ready to take a break here in a minute. Uh, how, um, with us migrating across the country and, and changing collard greens to turnip greens maybe, or even kale, uh, you know, going from... Uh, pigeon peas or black eyed peas to Crowder peas. Where did that ingenuity come from in, in cooking uh, during this time of slavery or maybe even the time of the 50s and 60s where you saw a lot of us not going to TV dinners but staying true to the techniques that we grew up with? Yeah, so I think a lot of it has to deal with kind of migrants getting to a new place and just trying to figure out how to, how to replicate what they were used to. Um, and so, you know, often they just didn't have access to those ingredients. And so they adopted, um, you know, just whatever was available in that area. But um, the migration of African-Americans out of the South coincided the revolutionizing of our food system. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in time, people could get those collard greens. They could get uh, dried black eyed peas. They could get a lot of the things and replicate it. You know, they could get canned peaches and things like that. So I, I think it's uh, people adjusting uh, to a new environment and then figuring out how they could recreate home. And, and what do you have in Denver? I mean, do you, I mean, are you guys growing <laughs> collards up there? Or do you, I mean, are you getting fresh collards? Uh, uh, what, what colors are you using up there? If, you, if you're using collards at all. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, in our grocery stores, um, and I, I don't know if they're shipped from another place, but we've got collard, mustard, and turnip greens and kale oh, wow. readily available. Yeah. As a guy who um, who's here in Georgia um, and all our greens come from somewhere in Georgia, I'm just uh, happy when I travel to other places and I might stumble on a grocery store and I see Georgia products on there because I know the soil in which they're they're grown here. We're going to take a quick break uh, right here. You're listening to Soul by Todd Richards. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. So 
So we're back with Soul by Todd Richards and my guest, Adrian Miller. And so, Adrian, let's talk about this book, uh, Black Smoke, African-American, United States of Barbecue. And, and I know this is already going to start some controversy with the name uh, Black Smoke. I mean, that's in, invocative. Um, then you have African-Americans, United States of Barbecue. Why did you want to write a book about uh, black folks in barbecue? Well, Chef Richards, you hit the nail on the head. Um, basically, I have noticed that there, with, when it comes to barbecue-related media, there's just very little representation of African-Americans. Um, and, and it's just really maddening because African-Americans have made significant contributions to this cuisine. And so um, basically, food media has fallen in love with white dudes and <laughs> certain types of white dudes when it comes to barbecue. And so um, the message that African-American barbecues viewers are getting from food media is, hey, we're just not that into you. Well, so um, so this book is really a look at the history, the development. It, it just shows and proves overwhelmingly how uh, African-Americans are central to the barbecue narrative in the United States. And you just can't really celebrate barbecue without including black folks. So let's talk about uh, the origin of black barbecue. If there is an origin that was written, uh, it seems to me that it's always been just by technique wise. And, and most people know me as a chef. I talk about techniques always uh, as the emphasis of cooking because you can change the ingredients, uh, but you can't change necessarily the cooking method for all ingredients. Uh, what was the emphasis of black barbecue starting? Did, it, did you find it in West Africa, North Africa? Did you find it more in one part of the United States like Virginia or, or the rural, farther rural South? Where did you really find that first you know, history of black barbecue being cooked? Yeah, so I desperately wanted to find a West African provenance or origin mm -hmm. for barbecue. And I just didn't see it because... The way that meat is cooked, especially in the low-level um, areas close to the coast, where a lot of enslaved Africans uh, came from, um, it just meat is not cooked that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's really kind of in the highland areas that you see something that is, is approaches barbecue. Now, of course, there could have been cultural contact, but you know, you, you just don't see the way the barbecue developed. Um, so I pinpointed to really Virginia, mm. and um, barbecue's foundation was laid by Native Americans. And then Europeans grafted on their grilling traditions. And so what Native Americans were doing was changed into this unique thing that was called barbecue. Um, even though the word barbecue was applied to all these styles and there's a bunch of confusion. But essentially, barbecue was the same way no matter where you did it in the American South during the 1700s and 1800s. Okay. So it was digging a trench, filling that trench with burning hardwood coals, then cooking whole animals, could be pigs, uh, could be sheep, could be cows. And then you would stick poles on the side of the animal after you butchered it to uh, flip it so that it could be flipped uh, periodically for even cooking and then basted with some kind of red pepper and vinegar sauce. So no matter where you did that, that was called barbecue. It really isn't until the late 1800s, early 1900s that we start to see the specialization that leads to the regional styles that we celebrate today. So I argue that black barbecue really is an inheritance from Native American barbecuers, but then African-Americans become barbecue's principal cooks. And so for two centuries, they honed and defined what barbecue is.
So I, I, I understand what you're saying about that. When you look at uh, the terms of frying, where people talk about fried chicken um, and they associate it with soul food per se, but it's really, you know, every country or culture in the world has a type of fried chicken or a fried bird type of recipe. Here in this country, they use bear fat, you know, you know as the fat for, for choice uh, from Native Americans. And we picked up on those techniques. But when you look at that Virginia and that, you know, 200 years of, of black barbecues, how were spice were spices uh, done differently? Like you know, you see some people use dry rub, some people just use salt and pepper. Was there a different way spices were applied in order to make it distinctly black? I, the only thing I could find, because um, I was really trying to figure out when did rub start being used, and I, I just don't. I think it was a 20th century thing, mm. but um, I think the the real imprint that African Americans had was the uh, copious use of red pepper. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make it spicy because there's, there's just so many references in newspapers about barbecue where that <laughs> the barbecue was literally fire mm. uh, you know and you have to understand that at that time that was considered low class to have highly seasoned food because they people were buying into the french aesthetic of balance so to have this highly seasoned food that was that that showed that barbecue was lower class working class food it sounds like it kind of reminds me of uh, Nashville hot chicken um, mm-hmm. when, when that was considered, you know, uh, soul food or hood food and things like that. And now, uh, you know, fast food chains around the, the country <laughs> are, are, are selling it. And we see that same kind of um, exploitation. It reminds me of watching 70s movies, the black exploitation <laughs> movies, you know, where where the foodways were, were said to be one, you know, the, the vision of it um, was then mimicked by everyone else. Uh, but let me ask you something else about uh, your research. What was the use of vegetables? Were there any use of vegetables? Was it always meat that got the moniker barbecue? Uh, it was definitely meat. Um, you don't you don't see a lot of references to um, vegetables. Now, certainly there were side dishes made, and um, towards the uh, late 1800s, you start to see more descriptions of vegetables being cooked alongside the meat. So in that uh, pit, there might be uh, sweet potatoes or other root, you know, uh, tubers and other things that were cooked. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it was really all about the meat. And and again, um, we we think of barbecue as just pork. But they were doing quarter cows. They were doing whole pigs and whole sheep um, on the regular and in different parts of the South. So this this idea that pork is South, tech, beef is Texas, that really does not hold up to historical scrutiny. Oh, wow. That's that's fascinating. Um, when I wrote Soul and I and, and Tony Tipton Martin talked about this when she wrote uh, a couple of her books, uh, Jubilee, and I wrote Soul, that our editors for our books wanted to know why we had lamb in our cookbooks. He said, that's that's, you know, black people don't eat lamb. And I and I had so I had to beg to differ. I said, I remember eating lamb more as a kid than I did eating beef, um, you know, so so, you know, erasing stereotypes. Types, I, I believe, or, or 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 finding the truth in stereotypes and using it to benefit ourselves is one thing I always find fascinating uh, in in your work and what you, what you've been writing. Uh, what is the hope, though, that people get out of your book? So, one, I, I just hope that people will pause and just look at what stories are being told about barbecue, and just say, well, you know, why aren't there black people here? And then, in, to the extent that black people are shown, are they conveyed authority? Are they given the same status as these white cooks? 
Um, I just hope people, and then, you know, ultimately I hope that more African-Americans get love and prosper from the craft that they've performed for centuries. Um, and I, I just want to bring more balance into the barbecue storytelling. Let me ask you this question, uh, because uh, before we started talking about your book, Black Smoke, African-American United States of Barbecue, uh, you were saying about migration. And I always, you know, wonder, has the barbecue trends uh, or the barbecue tradition uh, translated throughout the country? Because when you get to the West Coast, you don't see a lot of reference to black barbecue. You don't see a lot of reference to barbecue at all. Well, you do now in Oakland. Oakland is having this big resurgence of, uh, of black pit masters. But you don't see a lot of uh, historical value or, or, or written notes about that. Did barbecue translate, you know, it, was that a technique that we took with us in, in that migration? Or was it something that just skipped some generations uh, throughout the travel? Oh, no, we definitely took barbecue with us during the migration. In fact, if you look at communities all over the country, um, African-American food entrepreneurs usually opened up one of three business mm-hmm. businesses, a fried chicken place, a fried fish place, and a barbecue place. Mm-hmm. And that's all over. And so the really the first wave of barbecue restaurants appear in the 1890s. Oh, wow. And a lot of times these were African-Americans showing up. I mean, in, in Denver, there were black folks running barbecue restaurants, 1902, 1903. Mm. Uh, you know, Henry Perry shows up in Kansas City, 1905. Um, and so you've got uh, 1890s, you've got barbecue joints opening up in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, no, it's definitely part of the story. It's just not well-documented and celebrated. But what happens is... Um, a whole bunch of white entrepreneurs opened barbecue joints up in the 1920s. Okay. Now, a lot of them were not great, just given by the the reviews. But um, it, barbecue was really exploded when automobile travel became more feasible for the average American. So mm-hmm. barbecue was considered like um, for for the 1700s, 1800s. Barbecue was big public spectacle food. Okay. Um, any civic event, all, all kinds of occasions were used for barbecue. Barbecue becomes more personal with the automobile. And so it's thought of more as like road food or something you would just have, uh, you know, as convenience. And I mean, so- you, you look at something like the pulled pork sandwich, you know, which I can really understand by convenience, is that something is pulled, you can wrap it in a, in a, in a paper, uh, just eat it in the go, eat it in the car. Uh, it might, barbecue might have this fast, more sound like more have a fast food or even a destination dining experience um, that you talked about. Certainly we look at some of our friends like Rodney Scott, you know, where he's created this dining experience where people drive for miles uh, and with his uh, parents' place, Scott's Barbecue, we've seen that. Uh, but we don't see really anyone outside of that, you know, taking that 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 flag and running with it. Do you think there's still more room uh, in this modern era of, of Black barbecue to tell the story in even further depth? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot that I had to leave out of the book because I just, you know, I had a word limit. Um, But yeah, no, there's plenty to be um, stories to be told. Uh, I came across some fascinating people throughout history um, doing the barbecue thing. And uh, again, I had to leave a lot of people out. So I think their stories have to be told. Um, There's a lot of new people on the scene, um, uh, especially women. Black women have been in the Mm -hmm. barbecue game for a long time. I don't think we appreciate that. And I wrote a uh, you know, I write about these women in my book. Um, and then there's this kind of undiscovered or underappreciated barbecue styles that are black. You know, nobody talks about Southside Chicago as a regional barbecue style and they should. 
There's no reason. Except for me, being a guy from Southside <laughs> Chicago, <laughs> right, you right. know, with the aquarium pits that we have. And it's a very distinctive flavor. Right. But no, yeah, nobody ever talks about them. Um, and then uh, East Texas, like the what's happening in Houston, Beaumont, you know, when people talk about Texas barbecue, they automatically gravitate to the Central Texas and the German, you know, the Central European immigrant uh, vibe. Mm-hmm. But they, they just ignore uh, the black contributions to Texas barbecue. So. Well, you know, let's talk about uh, that just a little bit further. Um, and just, you know, in Chicago, you know, we had aquarium pits. And what I find is that is more charcoal uh, there. And it makes sense to me because there's not a lot of trees uh, in the area that's, you know, to produce really great wood for cooking barbecue. But then you get to the south and you see all these, uh, you know, oaks and, 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 and oak trees. And it's a distinctive flavor between smoking and I think uh, barbecue in a sense of of where the the fuel source has so much in-depth flavor. Is that something that you find uh, with your research on the red pepper? How, did that really affect the, the, the taste of it, or the, the woods they were using, or were they just using like charcoal where they would take embers, like, you know, kind of like Roddy does and makes his own embers and make barbecue that way? Yeah, so uh, it's really... Um... The pivot point is 1900. So mm-hmm. before 1900, it was wood burning just wood down. So they would just chop whatever the local wood was because barbecue was a big social event. So enslaved people, they would the ideal barbecue was in a rural setting, you know, especially by some kind of brook. And so uh, before the event, enslaved people would be in, would be told, you know, forced to clear the area so that people can actually have a barbecue there. Mm-hmm. And then they would chop down the local trees and burn them down to create the the coals for the um the the fight the pit where the coals were put in and then the meat was cooked over that. So it's really when we get to this transition from rural to urban barbecue that charcoal starts to take more prominence. Okay. And uh, and what I argue in my book is I believe that that transition to rural from rural to urban barbecue really changed the um aesthetic for African American barbecue. I think when most people think about African-American barbecue, they're thinking of that charcoal taste you described. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely would agree agree with that. And, and let me ask you one more question on the subject. Uh, we only have a few more minutes here, and I want to I ask you a couple other things. But what about on the coast? Um, you know, th- was there more seafood used? Uh, uh, people, uh, you know, when we first opened Lake Oak Neighborhood Barbecue, people were asking us for seafood dishes. I said, wow, why do people want so much, <laughs> you know, seafood in a barbecue place? Then I had to re- realize that we are closer to Savannah than I really give us credit for. You uh-huh. know, in Atlanta, and we're definitely close to Charleston. They're both within four hours of, or four, well, four hours if I'm driving, maybe five hours if somebody, somebody else is driving. But, you know, did, did seafood become any part of, of your research in finding these these contributions to barbecue? Yeah, so but I, I really only found them on the East Coast. I didn't see them so much on the West Coast, but definitely, like, for instance, smoked mullet. Mm. Uh, you see that in Florida all the way up to the Carolinas. Um, mm-hmm. So I even included a recipe for that in my book. But yeah, I, you definitely see smoked mullet. As a as an example of of a fish uh, being part of the barbecue culture, that said, I would not I would not say it's prevalent uh, like a, a really big part of the culture. And let me ask you just one more question uh, uh, about it, and, and we'll move on. Like I said before, but um, 
Did you find any difference in between uh, smoking, barbecue, and grilling? And grilling to me is anything above probably 275 because it's really hard to cook something that long, higher than that temperature. So did you find anything where people were just taking cuts of meat or vegetables or fish and grilling them in that same kind of uh, atmosphere of, of a barbecue where they were using more high heat than necessarily the low and slow that everyone thinks barbecue uh, is the best way to cook it. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people might throw rocks at me for this, but mm -hmm. I think it's a similar to the charcoal story. I think the transition from um, rural to urban meant that people were cooking faster and hotter mm -hmm. um, because, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you got to define barbecue and man, trying to define barbecue is like catching a greased pig. Right. <laughs> right. You know, because so many people are doing stuff. So yeah, I did find that. And especially, but more in the urban settings. Um, okay. Yeah. Cooking hot and fast. Um, and I think that becomes part of the African-American barbecue aesthetic. And also, I would believe that sauce um, is also probably under that same kind of ways because, I, you know, in certain areas in the South, I don't even remember, you know, vinegar being a sauce. I don't think that's really part of a sauce. I think that's part of basting or mm -hmm. what people might call mop water. I don't really figure that into a sauce, but finding a sauce, I didn't really uh, understand what sauce was into barbecue until I went into the city. And <laughs> ate it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I did a whole chapter on sauce because I think for a lot of African-Americans, sauce takes primacy over the meat. I can't tell you how many people I interviewed. They said, well, anybody can cook the meat, but that's the sauce. That's what it's about. So oh, I, 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 we, we, I we, need, we need to have a round table on this one. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, you know, I mean, really, we're out that, that. I mean, that's going to be a whole a whole nother conversation. You know, maybe uh, right when the book comes out, maybe we'll all get together. We'll get a round table together and discuss that in depth. I think it'd be really great for people to have that. Or if maybe if we have a food festival that happens next year in 2021 yeah. after COVID, we'll get all get together. Let me um, just go back a little bit to to this era of COVID, uh, the 2019, the, the movements that we've seen in the Black Lives movements, definitely, the, uh, like you said, there's no representation really of women in barbecue. So we've seen this strong feminine presence in there, but we also have come across this type of of work uh, that you do or I do, a lot of people do, but also there is a, a younger generation that's trying to come behind us mm -hmm. and, and, and really find their own foothold uh, in writing and understanding that. What advice would you give to these up and coming people uh, who really want to understand how you became successful and how can they better themselves in writing books on especially African-American subject matter? Yeah. So the, the advice I love to give is, first of all, you have to do the work um, because there's a lot of people that are doing fake lore, as I call it, mm. or they're just they're just recycling inaccurate stuff. And it really damages their credibility. I think one of the things that people rely on me is they're like, OK, Adrian might not be right all the time, but we, we trust that he's looked into it and done the research and he's probably you know has a pretty good feel for the subject matter so i say do the work i would say also share your dream a lot mm. of people are scared to do that because they're afraid mm -hmm. somebody might steal their idea i know that stuff happens but i gotta tell you so much good stuff has happened for me because i told people what i was working on um and it's wow. led to a lot of things um and then i, I would, the last thing i would say is like do the kind of writing that you want to read I think a lot of people get hemmed up because uh, they try to mimic other people or mm -hmm. they're trying to guess what the public wants. Just write what you want to read. Um, 
and you know, reach out to those before you. And but when I can say do the work, take the time to read those who have come before you. Um, you know, I was enriched because I read the work of Dr. Jessica B. Harris mm-hmm. and other people who had pioneered these fields. Um, and because I was at the Southern Foodways Alliance, listened to those presentations, followed up with the presenters, read other authors. That's what helped me immense, immensely. Just diving in and thinking you know it all, um, you know, that that's the road to ruin, in my opinion. There's a level of curiosity, I believe, that also that you have to have in wanting to write these subject matters. I, I, I don't think you can just walk in and say, I'm an expert without being curious, (laughs) you know, curious at at first. And, and one thing that you and I talked about before uh, coming on and and recording this episode that, that I believe that council culture is being counseled right now. Um, It's canceling itself because they're finding that they're a group of people working together who don't know a bunch of nothing about nothing and, and, and are exposing themselves, you know, <laughs> as, as, as a lack of a better term as frauds in their business. Yep. Um, because I don't think they're really that curious uh, yeah. uh, about, about it. And I believe that they are, are, are really uh, fist bound, banging their hands on the table, but not really exploring enough. Yeah. Uh, of who we are. And I believe that comes out of still out of shame. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that is the, the, the worst thing that we can continue to do is to be shameful of our experience uh, in this in this country. You know, could I add one more? Uh, if I could just add one more Almost piece definitely. to that. Uh, you know, I think it's part of the, uh, the uh, another aspect of our culture is that a lot of people just want to get something for nothing, really, mm. or do very little to get where they want to be. And uh, that's why I say you got to do the work. Wow. That, 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 that's fascinating. We got about one more minute here. Um, so what are you going to do after this book comes out? Are you going on tour? And the reason I'm asking <laughs> that is because, you know, we, we still in, in a, a COVID environment, you know, the vaccine uh, might be coming out shortly or by the time someone hears this, the vaccine might be out. But also, you know, are we going to go back to those traditional ways of selling books or promoting books? Uh, what is your plans uh, thus far for when the book is released? Such a timely question. And, you know, it's just so much moving parts right now, um, but everything's going to be delayed. So I've already booked virtual events that will be happening. But I think in terms of an in-person event, I'm just looking at fall mm-hmm. to do kind of my big, because what I want to do with the when I have a kickoff event was to basically uh, have a setting where I had different barbecue styles, uh, you know, prepared and people can enjoy them and just hear about the, the story of barbecue. So that probably won't happen until the fall. Uh, but I think, yeah, going forward, it's going to be a hybrid. I think there's always going to be some kind of virtual component and much smaller audiences, which creates a challenge for an author because a lot of times you get book sales when people hear you mm-hmm. and they're right there in the moment. So um, I guess I'm going to have to brush up on my presentation skills <laughs> to make it. Well, you are working on a new uh, a virtual event uh, celebrating this election uh, that we that we just had, and and for our listeners, uh, uh, Adrian, you know, you know, is an attorney by profession. Uh, I, I think he's a, a much um, greater writer than he is maybe an attorney. Judging by the the fact that he's on here talking <laughs> about about food and not not law. Um, so, so what are you what are you doing um, and working on for celebrating the election that took place uh, here uh, not too long ago? Yeah, just understanding where we are in our society with COVID and the pandemic. I'm going to have a virtual inauguration party. Uh, I haven't set the date yet because I'm just fine, trying to figure out if President Biden 
we'll have an inauguration party that's virtual that evening. So it'll either be on the 20th. I would love to have it that day or the 19th. And it will have a it, it, part of it will be celebrating uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris, but also uh, a celebration of the African-Americans who have worked in the White House. So I have former White House cooks who are going to be there for a live chat. I've got uh, Jesse Holland, who wrote a book. Black men built the Capitol and also about African-Americans in the White House. I'll do a little something, something. We'll have some entertainment. And then also I've created some tribute menus uh, based on the recipes of various chefs around the country. And so we'll send that out ahead of time so people can make dishes and enjoy the evening. So, you know, it's going to be a party, but also just kind of in- informational and entertaining. I, I think that's really fascinating uh, to do in this environment. And one thing that you really talked about uh, in our conversation here was the ingenuity uh, of African-Americans, uh, especially through slavery and how we overcoming and continue to overcome poverty and, and still make delicious food. I can't thank you uh, enough for taking the time out of your schedule to be on on uh, Soul by Todd Richards. Uh, you are a great friend. Where can everyone find you on social media? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Soul Food Scholar on most platforms. So Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, those are the places where I'm most active. So Soul Food Scholar. And then my website is soulfoodscholar.com. And can they purchase any books on your your website or is that the best way to get them? Yeah, yeah. So if you go on my website, there's a column in the navigation bar about, about my books and you can order my soul food book, my president's kitchen cabinet book, or pre-order the black smoke book. And I'm happy to autograph it. Even though I don't know you, I can say, Hey, I couldn't have done this without you. I'll sign it. However you want me to. Oh, that, that is absolutely fantastic. I thank you again so much. I hope to see you soon. Uh, hopefully it's before March, but you never know. That would be a year since the last time we got yeah. together. Uh, I think I'm still hungover from the amount of uh, champagne, <laughs> whiskey, uh, and we ate, and I think we ate so much. Oh my goodness. Uh, the, uh, the, the the Kobe beef and truffles oh, on, on, the, on the hot rock. So, you know, just let everybody know that, that though Adrian and I, you know, love soul food and talk about it, uh, neither one of us would pass up champagne and truffles if anyone is offering, <laughs> <laughs> offering for us, you know? Yeah, bet. <laughs> Again, Adrian, I thank you so much for, uh, for your time and I hope to see you uh, in the near uh, future, my friend. All right, sounds good. Soul by Todd Richards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please, Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.